I just saw tied to one of our previous stories, a uh, court in France declared that use of Google Analytics violates GDPR. Oh, wow. There is a gathering storm here going on. Mm-hmm. And it'll be fascinating to watch how this all shakes out. Yeah, like basically any third party server that you hit. Scary, but cool, but scary. What's going on, party people? Gatsby Comp 2022 is right around the corner. The conference is totally free and it's totally virtual, so everyone can join. Plus, when you register, you get access to all the conference recordings when they're published. The event is happening March 2nd and March 3rd, and registration is open right now. Check it out at GatsbyConf.com. Here's what to expect. Day one is all about talks. You're going to hear from the Gatsby co-founders and leadership on speed improvements to the build system incremental architecture the latest on gatsby cloud of course some announcements and more they've also invited a ton of folks from the community to speak and day one kicks off with chris coyer on the keynote day two is all about workshops they got more than 10 workshops to attend and the next step is to head to gatsbyconf.com to learn more and register again gatsbyconf.com This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Join in on the hijinks at jsparty.fm slash community. It's totally free. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at jspartyfm. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for delivering you our episodes super fast all around the world. Check them out at fastly.com. All right, here we go. Hey. It's party time, y'all. Oh, yes, friend. You know the sound of those Breakmaster Cylinder beats means it's time once again for JS Party. I'm Jared. I am your friend. I have three of my internet friends here with me. Amelia's here. What is up, Amelia? Hey, not much. You ready to rock? Oh, yeah. I'm ready. You ready to sing? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> K-Ball's here. Always ready to dance. You know it. I heard the BMC could stick going and I was rocking out over here. I've missed that. You still rocking multiple cups of coffee every morning? Are you are you on your coffee kick or? Of course. I think I, what, four today maybe? Four? That's excessive, K-Ball. I don't know. We, we do two pots of uh, French press between my wife and I. And Wow, that's impressive. And that voice that you hear is Allie Spittle. What's up, Allie? Pretty good. Pretty good. Have not had coffee today, so should get on that. How do you survive? How do you survive? <laughs> I try to do it maybe three days a week so that I don't have the impact of it too much. Okay. Still effective. So do you find that when you drink it less, that when you do drink it, it has more of an impact? Totally. Totally. Because K-Ball just hooks up an IV right into his arm and then he doesn't even feel anything. It's just like, just part of his bloodstream at this point. Well, I wake up at five, right? So I wake up at five and I have my first cup of coffee and kind of get going. Mm-hmm. But I'm usually done with coffee by like nine o'clock in the morning. And I don't have at the latest I ever have coffee is like lunchtime and then I'm done. Right. Well, waking up at five, you'd probably don't have any problem sleeping at night though. None. I'm like out by nine o'clock. <laughs> so that's awesome. Same with me. Like nine thirty if we're if we're getting crazy if it's party time, you know, maybe make it to ten ten PM maybe. Just in case. Oh wow. Well nothing good happens after midnight and then I just take it a couple hours off just in case you know i don't want to be i want to live dangerously i mean that's why in the before times i love to go to the east coast because then i could actually behave like a normal pretend i'm a normal adult for a little while and like stay up past nine (laughs) (laughs) o'clock well your nine o'clock is much later than our nine o'clock you know by the time you go to bed it's 11 p.m my time and probably midnight amelia's time Hmm. yep oh no four hours right i can't remember where you live again (laughs) (laughs) Amelia's in D.C. D.C., yeah. Right. Let's do some segments, huh? And our brand new segment, my creation, I thought of this all myself. There was no way I stole it, the idea from GoTime. It was completely and all me. It's called Holla. So for Holla, which is where we holla at various community meetups, events, things going on, if you host a meetup or a conference that's upcoming and you'd like to have us holla at you, holla at us at JS Party FM. Today, we want to bring to your attention Ember.js Europe. 
So the Ember JS Europe meetup brings together the Ember community from all of Europe once every quarter, except the Emberfest quarter. I'm not sure which quarter that one is, but don't go to Ember Europe meetup that quarter. They won't be there. Every other quarter they will be. It's organized as a hybrid event hosted from a different city each time with the option for people to join remotely as well. And they have an upcoming event Thursday, March 31st, their very first Ember Europe meetup, already 15 attendees, and that will be both IRL and online. So check that out. We'll link it up in the show notes. It's on meetup.com, ember-europe. This has been your holla of the day. Holla! <laughs> Jared, I want to hear you do that. Can I holla? Can I holla? Can I holla? Holla, 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 holla. <laughs> Are you sure you wanted to hear me do it? I don't know. It, it got me thinking, right? Like, what are other th- plays we can do on Hala? Like, mm. what's the friendliest type of bread? Hala. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that kind of bread. Is that a is that a West Coast bread? No, it's like a Jewish traditional bread. We have it on Shabbat. Oh, I thought maybe it was like a proper noun kind of a thing, like a manufacturer. No, it's traditional. It's delicious. It's slightly mm-hmm. sweet, kind of eggy bread. So good. Really tasty. You are missing out, my friend. Maybe they just don't have that in Nebraska. But Is anybody, Allie and Amelia, are you aware of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've never had Hala? No, I've never heard of it until right now. <laughs> Find a good Jewish deli okay. that does Hala French toast. Ooh. And you will thank me for the rest of your life. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to actually do that. Hala French toast. That reminds me, what's the hilly seaside neighborhood within the city of San Diego, California? Well, it's La Jolla. <laughs> Just spelled the same as all up, but unfortunately uses an AA. Anywho, today we're doing story of the week. Let's get it kicking. It's time to take a peek. It's time for the story of the week. Story of the week is our segment where we take turns sharing what we believe is the most important or the biggest or maybe just the most interesting to us story of the week or the recent times. Since we don't do this weekly, you can go back a little further than merely a week. Let's start off with Allie because I'm looking at the notes and I think she drilled it with the biggest story of recent times. Allie, what is it? Fetch is coming to note, which I am (laughs) so excited about. This is something that... I have been annoyed by it at varying points of using Node, so very, very excited about it. And it's top level, and it's just going to be there. It's just right there for you to use. There's no imports. There's no extra namespacing. You don't have to do anything. You just type fetch. It's amazing. Is that right? Yeah. Now, I know there were some challenges in getting that to happen, right? Do you know anything about what made it hard? Why, why was this such a long time coming? I have no idea. That's a good question. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> Where's our Node.js experts, Chris or Nick? They're not here. They're not on the show today. I do know it's been a long time coming. I do know that I looked at the thread on GitHub on the, not the issue, but the PR that was merged, and it was very long. But I don't know what took so long. I assume it's like backwards compatibility, or maybe there's some, I mean, it's a top-level keyword fetch. So... Probably not backwards compatibility, That well, now that I think about that. It probably was implementation details. I don't know. Who cares? It's here now. Woo! <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. So what node version do you need to, to get fetch? You need 17.5. So it's landed. Is 17.5, is it, is it behind an experimental flag, or is it just like, if you have 17.5, you're good to go? I think that's when it lands. You can use the experimental fetch flag... I don't know. This article is not very clear. <laughs> I'm trying to skim it. Well, it's a JS party. It's not a JS research assignment. So <laughs> Good. we only go so far, people. Yeah, it's hard to research, too, because the node fetch NPM package is what comes up for everything. Mm-hmm. So the the pull request that was merged, the add fetch pull request, does say this adds a dash dash experimental fetch flag. I see. That installs fetch, request, response, and headers as globals. And so I do believe 17.5 is when it lands, but it still might be a thing that you have to opt into until they're ready to consider it final and and put it in for everybody. But who's not going to opt into this? Like, come on, give me the fetch. Give me the fetch. 
So handy. Yeah, experimental fetch right now. And then eventually it'll just be global. Yeah, I'm looking. There's this big hacker news thread about like, why was this hard or why was this? It's like meandering all over the place. So it's hard to read on the on the fly, but we can include a link to that. And I think there, you know, some of the the authors are involved in that as to kind of why was this such a problem? I think it is that like backwards compatibility, new APIs. Well, just here we see that it's not just the fetch keyword. It's actually four top level keywords. So maybe there was some more backwards compatibility with response request and headers. Here's the challenges. So it's tightly integrated into the caching model of browsers. A large chunk of the spec is about caching, which is incompatible with the caching model of Node. Mm. Part of the spec is about the security model, which may not make sense in Node. Spec deals with the browser connection pool, which is different from how it might be handled in Node. It's global, which is also a challenge. Sure. It uses what WG streams, which were at least at that point not supported in Node. I don't know if that has been added or not. So implementation details, anytime you're bringing a browser API into the server side, there's going to be miscompatibilities, things that just don't make sense in that different context. And so decisions must be made and code must be written, it sounds like. But regardless, I think this will be a boon for developer productivity all around the world, especially when it lands globally without a flag. Because anytime you can just learn an API once and use it everywhere, that's a win, right? Yeah. Half as much work. No more need to polyfill it. Exactly. I don't know. I have definitely used Node Fetch before. All right. So that has a big news. Probably going to win if this was a contest. <laughs> no offense to you all. I've seen the other entries. <laughs> but let's move on anyways and see what Cable has to offer. Cable, what's your story of the week? Yeah. So I saw something float by by a guy named uh, Gergely Oros. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Gergay. Gergay. Okay. The guy who, who's behind the Pragmatic Engineer, which is kind of blown up recently. And it was sort of a quick mention that, oh, Meta is now hiring engineering managers remote, always not just engineers, at least in the UK. And I think it's like a hint to a larger story, which is around the continued sort of ripple effects of the move to remote work, how more and more companies, even these large companies are having to say, you know what, this is not just a during the pandemic thing. Like the world has changed. We're going to hire folks all over. We're going to have an ongoing remote plan. And I think there's some really interesting ripple effects in terms of how it levels salaries across the country and across the world. I mean, I think I've heard from folks who are hiring contractors in like Eastern Europe and the Philippines and things like that. And like folks who have been in places where salaries were much lower to do software development, they've seen like 50%, 70%, 100% increases in how much you can earn as a software developer. And I, I just think it's it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. There's so many different ripples. Like one, that's a lot more money. It basically makes software development even more of an export industry, right? You can use that to bring money into wherever the heck you are. I think it potentially, like they're making this money going to US-based mostly and some European-based multinational companies, which then means local software development shops are going to be starved for talent or having trouble competing, which means, yes, there's more money flowing in, but there's also like less development for local-facing things. So like the world is changing in a way that I find absolutely fascinating. And I'd be curious to hear y'all's take on it. Yeah, for me, it's like um, the biggest silver lining of the pandemic, if the pandemic had any good points. I've had to move to not tech hubs because my husband's in academia and I've been kind of following him around, which is hilarious because we're about to move to San Francisco in a few weeks now that it's not cool anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's still cool. Yeah, but if you live there long enough, it'll become cool again. And then you can say, I lived here before it was cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's my uh, that's my plan. That's your plan. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's the long game. But like (laughs) moving to non tech hubs from a tech hub originally it's like a totally different tech scene, which is great. Like I've learned a lot living in, I lived in upstate New York for a while and the tech scene there is pretty different, but I learned a lot from like the people there who were doing these different kinds of projects, but you don't really have access to, you know, startups or the big companies. So it would have been awesome when I was moving there to have the option to pretty much work at any of these larger tech companies. And I can imagine the same in other countries. Although I've heard that 
most remote jobs, I don't know if this is true, are mostly remote in U.S. and Canada. Mm. And I don't know if that usually applies to other countries. So I know a lot of, like, we're only hiring U.S., for example, though we're all over. So a lot of U.S.-based companies are. But I also, like, one, uh, Gergay has been publishing stuff on the impact of, like, Eastern Europe. I don't know if those are folks coming from other parts, like Western Europe hiring into Eastern Europe, but there's been huge changes there. The other thing that I heard as I was talking with someone who's a startup co-founder working mostly with contract developers at the moment, and the, the rates of hiring contract developers overseas have skyrocketed. So that may not be the same type of like you're hiring full-time employees, but it's still like demand for remote work and remote development in a way that is totally changing the landscape. Yeah, I know it's difficult to hire full-time employees in other countries just for like legal and tax reasons a lot of times for companies, but also from a team perspective, it can be hard for time zones too. I manage a team that is globally distributed right now. Like It's mostly U.S.-based, but there are some folks from not in the United States. And it's awesome that we have that opportunity now for sure. But that's one thing that I noticed, though, is that like those first couple hours of the day are packed with meetings because they're the time that everybody's online. And so then the afternoon becomes a little bit less packed. And I'm sure it's the inverse for a lot of other teams. So I think that's a really interesting piece of it, too, is like in some roles, they're really, really good at being remote first and asynchronous first. And I wonder how that's going to also change the nature of work. It's going to make it probably less social than it is now. And I've noticed that just moving remote myself is that, you know, you used to go out with colleagues and get drinks or whatever after work, or you used to just have the water cooler chats and you can kind of mimic that remote, but it isn't exactly the same. And so maybe it'll make it so that people are more reliant on their hobbies and things for social groups instead of their jobs. So another interesting piece of it. Yeah, I lost the drinking with folks after work when I had kids, which was before the remote <laughs> problem. <laughs> All right. I've always been remote, so I've never had any of those cool things. Like, like I would hang out with people at conferences, and that was my opportunity to see people. Because out here in Nebraska, AK Ball, where the, it's not for everyone, but... It's for the cool ones, as we say. I don't even have to troll you. You'll troll yourself. <laughs> I just preemptively know that you're going to troll me. But, you know, there's a very small scene. And there was more of a scene before. Uh, there really isn't one now. And if there is, you know, I'm getting old and kind of aging out of social scenes anyways. But for me, that was changed. First of all, I love the access to opportunity for more people. Like, how cool is that? But from my vantage point, what's changed mostly is like people are way more comfortable with online remote communications. It's made podcasting way easier, sounding better. People are like, you know, they're used to being on zoom all day or they they've invested in their setups. And that's been a cool side effect of this uh, from a podcasting perspective is like, wow, we can have much better, higher quality conversations with more people because they're prepared for it. Whereas it used to be a lot of handholding, lot of technical issues and there are some people that like their setup just couldn't we're just never going to have them on a podcast and it's just because of circumstantial things and of course access to high quality internet is now more important than ever and we're starting to see you know municipalities and other government entities investing into those things and providing those as utilities or as a way of drawing people to your area so i think that's really cool too just a lot of like trickle down effects of this change all right, that's UK Ball. Amelia, it's your turn. Story of the week. Oh, man. Okay, so I couldn't choose one good one, so I chose two semi-okay ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you add them together. <laughs> yeah, it's two semi-okay ones. So this first one I thought was a little bit terrifying, honestly, is some German state court found a website violating GDPR because they're serving fonts from Google Fonts which tons of websites do. I do it on side projects because it's just easy. And like, I guess the extra step of hosting my own fonts is like prohibitive. But I thought that was pretty intense. And it's because you're sending uh, Google that, well, you're not sending it, but Google's getting the IP of your users, right? Right. 
Yeah, so related to that, maybe it's related. Maybe somebody knows this more than I do, I do. But there's been a back and forth between Meta slash Facebook and the European Union as of recent. And I've only caught the headlines. So if this is misinfo, you know, correct me, fact check me and stuff. But what I've read is that the gist of it is the European Union said if Facebook is going to operate and Instagram are going to operate in Europe, they must store the data for the European users in European countries, which we know is a difficult thing to get done just technically, right? It's, it's doable. They have lots of money. They can get it done. But it's like a huge investment to get that done. Facebook slash Meta goes back to the European Union and says, well, we're just going to pull out of Europe then, which is a pretty big move for Instagram and for Facebook to do that. And then the European Union just says, cool, go for it. Instant 5% productivity boost across of Europe. <laughs> exactly. They said something like, we think life would be better if you guys were gone or something like that. It's very saucy what they said. Exactly. Well, that was my reaction when I first saw the headline too. I was like, oh yeah, like sometimes I like seeing Instagram, but for the most part, I think life might be better without these. I don't think it's a huge loss. <laughs> right. So it's kind of been a fun, I think it's like a game of chicken at this point. Like who's actually going to do something? I don't know. These are like global politics versus corporations, but it's similar because it's, I don't know if it's a GDPR concerned, but it seems like it kind of is because it's like, well, it has to be stored on European servers if you're going to operate in these countries. It is related to GDPR. It's We work with enterprises in Europe and have to deal with GDPR and all these other things. And Germany's the worst, by the way, <laughs> of all of them. But the flowing of data between EU and, and US is like, there have been agreements, but they aren't well grounded legally. There has not been a, something that actually like is considered to be good. And I'm not a lawyer. This is like what I've learned from our lawyers, right, about this. But like- sure there's sort of a bunch of precedents that are sort of used and applied, but are not considered to be super strong. And we can like get away with a lot of it because we basically have contracts with, we're working with enterprises, not individuals. So we have a contract with the enterprise and we say, this is the grounding that we're putting on this. And they either say yes or no. But once they've said that it's in the contract, there's an agreement. When you're doing like a user agreement with individual users, I imagine it gets even much more complicated yeah, I know that's a big thing with choosing a cloud provider too, is like the different regions. It matters for legal reasons as well. Cool. Amelia, you do you want to give your second one? Yeah, I'm just glad I don't normally have to think about these things. Mm-hmm. All right. The second one is also a little bit terrifying. Basically, there was this headline from DeepMind recently that showed they have this, I think, model named Alpha Code, and they had it respond to these like leak code computer, like the interview questions where there's a prompt and you have to write code that does a certain thing. Right. And it, it basically did better than 46% of the human participants in the competition. So this isn't just like, like Copilot, which is like assisting humans to write code. This is, it's reading a prompt, which is all English and then writing code that does a certain thing. So even if like those competition questions aren't necessarily the hardest, this is just like the beginning of something that's going to be computers writing code from specs, which is cool and scary. So are the people that lost, are they programmers or are they just regular people? I don't think it actually like did a live competition, but I think they have stats of like past competitions and then it saw how it did compared to those people. The hiring manager in me who has seen submissions to code, requested code competitions or whatever, does not find this at all surprising. <laughs> <laughs> right. You would be shocked how many people who call themselves developers cannot solve these problems. Right. Why do you think that is? Is it, uh, you know, they're just trying to get some work or are they, is it delusions of grandeur? I don't know. Like it's, sometimes you have to trick yourself into thinking you can do a thing and then eventually you can do it. But what do you think about that? I mean... Because if it was me, I just wouldn't apply. It's a good question, right? But this is why like the FizzBuzz interview question is a thing. Because there's a bunch of people who like will apply to programming jobs and literally cannot program. And I don't know what's going on there. I mean, I think maybe they've 
only ever operated where they're like copying and pasting code that exists and like mm-hmm. trial and error to see if they can get it right. And they just have not developed the mental models at all. But I, I really don't know. Yeah. Maybe the opportunity is just so great. They're like, well, I might as well go for it. Because I mean, we're talking about the salaries. It's, it's a great living and it's only getting better. And then while meanwhile, other career choices are getting less attractive because of global macroeconomics and things. I don't know. It's definitely confusing. Yeah. A piece of me on the other hand that was really excited about this idea that like we don't have to write the boring stuff anymore because that's one of the most annoying parts of being a developer, I think, is like writing a form and form submission logic mm-hmm. over and over and over again. And so if that can be abstracted away or done for a developer, that's a huge boon to everybody's productivity right. because then you can focus on the hard stuff. And that's why we're all programmers in the first place it's not because we want to do the same repetitive stuff over and over again it's because we want to solve the new problems and build the cool stuff and maybe this will leave us more opportunity to do that so that's something that i'm a little bit excited about totally yeah that is cool i mean if you think about what i just said earlier in the show i've coded for many many years i took some time off and then it's like i gotta go look up the syntax for a for loop you know and i'm just like do i i I just want to loop over the things i don't care about the details i've written these loops in multiple languages it's like i, I don't want to do the repetitive st- i mean actually i technically do want to do a repetitive thing <laughs> but you know what i'm saying <laughs> i just want to yeah. do it seven times and then stop <laughs> but that's more along the lines of of what we're currently seeing from tools like github copilot and tab 9 this is like hey write a spec yeah and it does the coding that's a, that's a whole nother level of abstraction in fact we had the CEO and founder of Tab9 on the changelog, they, they have a AI code assistant. And I asked him about that. I'm like, is the end game where I can write a spec and the, and the program just does it? He's like, no. The end game is you're better at programming because you don't have to do the repetitive things. There you go. In the medium term end game. And like, he's like, well, you know, on an infinite timeline, of course. But what they're aiming for is like superpowers for people. More people can program, yeah. do superpowers. Whereas this is more operating on the, like the, hey, take the human out of it kind of a thing. It reminds me of like the no code tools, right? Like mm-hmm. no code has continually gotten better over time. And what it continues to do is is sort of move up the bar of kind of how much can be done without bringing a programmer, but always within the bounds of like, you can only solve solved problems, right? Like if you want to make a marketing website, a no code tool is phenomenal because that's a well-solved problem. There's not much innovative. There's not much new going on there. And for many cases, that's what you need. But anytime you're pushing the edge or trying to do something differently, it can't handle it. And I suspect this will be the same for any sort of AI trained tool because it's going to be trained on the bulk of things, which are usually like not the unique cases. Like if it's pattern matching, it's not going to be able to solve anything novel necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the immediate term, I'm really excited about those like hyper developer productivity tools like Copilot or these like kind of low code, but developer first low code solutions that just automate the boring stuff for you. And then you can focus on those things. For sure. Ultimately, I think the value that we provide is synthesizing ideas into working systems, right? Yeah. And that doesn't change regardless of what level you're operating at. So you just move higher up the stack, you synthesize more complex ideas or more ideas per capita than you did before, and you're just more productive. So I think it's going to be a, a win for all of us. Well, I will say Ali did steal my story of the week. So I submit this one <laughs> knowing that it's not as good, but uh, it's all right. It's all friendly competition around here. We're not actually trying to win. There is a post from Rauschma, Dr. Axel Rauschmeier. I feel like he's been on the show before or agreed to. I can't remember if you actually had him on the show, but you probably know him as a prolific author and writer in the JavaScript space, very good teacher. He has a post from the end of January about the pipe operator coming to JavaScript. He has introduction and use cases. So we've talked about the pipe operator before. It's been in development for many years. I think going all the way back to 2015 is when it first was introduced conceptually as what might be a cool new piece of JavaScript. It's now in stage two which if you're familiar with the stages of TC39, there's like four of them, I believe. Stage two is pretty far down the road, but obviously not in your browser yet. But the pipe operator is a very cool conceptual thing and one that I've enjoyed in the in the Elixir land. It's also, I think, F-sharp. Some other languages also have pipe operators. 
And the idea is to bring this to JavaScript. And he has a really, really well-written layout of what it is, why it's important, uh, how to use it, what it currently looks like, asking questions like, do we really need one of these? And then other ways it could have been implemented. So I'm excited that this is continuing to make progress. And I just submit this article. It's a really nice rundown of what it is and kind of where it stands. What do you all think? Pipe operator? Something that you want? You wanted fetch. You got it. How about pipes? I personally lean away from it just because I think that there's such a high learning curve for those functional programming languages because they're so symbol-based. And I see pros and cons to that. Like, I think it's a pro for making programming languages more universal globally mm-hmm. because I think that's a huge learning curve for programming as is that you pretty much have to program in English. And so the more operator-based we make these languages, the more globally useful they are. But on the other hand, I do think that it looks a little bit more intimidating at first glance to a new developer. And that's something that I feel a little bit split on personally. I totally hear that. Fair. I should say for the listener that the actual operator is a combination of the the pipe, which is like the straight line, vertical line, and the greater than sign, which forms kind of like a rightward facing triangle. Yeah, I, I think that is a real concern of like, and, it, and we've had that problem in JavaScript generally over the last yeah, mm-hmm. few years where it's it's become much more intimidating to start in JavaScript. I mean, personally, I would love this operator to exist because I love a functional programming style and doing it in JavaScript right now feels very awkward and verbose. I think it would be very personally useful, but I am concerned about the learning curve and the kind of increasing barrier to entry we're putting on JavaScript. Yeah, I used to teach JavaScript as my full-time job and teaching people the difference between different types of functions in JavaScript was just kind of a nightmare as is. And the arrow functions specifically, it was like, like why would I ever use this? Right. Like, where does the arrow go? Where, <laughs> where do all the things go? And so that's what scares me a little bit about this as well as like somebody new to JavaScript seeing it and being like all, all wigged out by it or something like that. Yes, I think the arrow function specifically had a bunch of extra baggage around it, around optionality. And the fact that it's not syntax sugar, it's actually like changing variable scopes versus the function keyword is very confusing. Mm -hmm. And there was just too much like, hey, if you don't need this, take it out and it still works. And I'm like, as somebody who casually uses those, I still have to remember like, well, why, where is the actually parameters here? And which ones are the, (laughs) where's the function? What's it returning? Like it's still, there's just too many ways you can use it in my opinion. I think the pipeline operator is simpler conceptually I like that it promotes functional practices, maybe without even knowing it. Like it, it's kind of like chaining, you know, it, it's promoting you to send data through a pipeline. I think that's cool, but I agree. Just adding one more operator to a language that's already difficult to wrap your mind around, especially at the beginning, could be raising that, that learning curve. Yeah, especially because it doesn't add new functionality. It's just adding another way to do a thing that you can already do. I totally agree that it, it's more syntax to learn, but I will play devil's advocate, which I think it can clean up code. So it's a new concept that it's one more thing to learn, but once you do learn it, maybe it crosses the threshold to being useful enough to like, once you know it, you can look at code and it's like a little bit faster to read each time, mm-hmm. but not sure. Has anybody written D3 before? Once or twice. Like the level of cheating on that. Probably Amelia probably has a lot more. <laughs> I have yeah. a book on it. <laughs> That's like its own little DSL, you know? That was my thought. It's like, okay, it actually might make like D3 cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, right? We love, we actually love chaining like APIs, right? The chaining API that you get with jQuery and things like that. Sure. But right now in JavaScript, that requires specially setting up your API to return objects that understand the API, right? And it's exactly. so it's like a particular architectural constraint. Yeah. Whereas this enables you to do that type of chaining with bare functions. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I know I this feature is in Elixir. I write a lot of Elixir. I use it nonstop. I would use it nonstop in JavaScript myself personally. And so that makes what I, makes me excited about it. And the fact that what you just said, said right there, K-Ball, like we've all seen the value of it in jQuery, but jQuery jumps through very specific hoops in order to make that available. Whereas this makes it available to pretty much any function. 
as long as you're passing the right thing in to the first argument. Anyways, if you're confused about the pipe operator, want to check it out, not sure what we're talking about, definitely check out his post, which is in our show notes. And if you're excited about it, let us know. If you think it's a terrible idea, also let us know. We want to hear from you at JSPartyFM or any of our individual handles as well. You can also email JSParty at changelog.com. If you have long things to say, we do read all of our emails. Before we close the segment, I just saw, tied to one of our previous stories, uh, the uh, court in France declared that use of Google Analytics violates GDPR. Oh, wow. There is a gathering storm here going on, mm-hmm. and the implications are going to be, it'll be fascinating to watch how this all shakes out. Yeah, like basically any third-party server that you hit, scary, but cool, but scary. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. Build better software faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. That number includes us. Here's the absolute easiest way to try Sentry right now. You don't have to do anything. Just go to try.sentry-demo.com. That is an open sandbox with data that refreshes every time you refresh or every 10 minutes, something like that. But long story short, that's the easiest way to try Sentry right now. No installation, no whatsoever. That dashboard is the exact dashboard we see every time we log into Sentry. And of course, our listeners get a deal. They get the team plan for free for three months. All you got to do is go to Sentry.io and use the code changelog when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code changelog. We are back, and it is time to play a little game we like to call Today I Learned. I got a story that I'm going to tell. You're going to love it, baby. Think it's well. I only learned it today. T-I-L. Is that another Matt Ryer hit? It is. That's good. That man is amazing. So this is where we share things that we've learned today with air quotes around today. Because, you know, it's still early. So recently. But uh, these could be bigger things or small things. It's kind of like pro tips, but more pointed and technical. Maybe it's a new API. Maybe it's a browser quirk. Maybe it's something you can do with Git. Whatever it is, we share it with you all so you can benefit. Allie, we'll go to you first. Okay, so mine's not technical. I'm sorry. But I've been listening to a lot of the Huberman's Lab podcast, which is amazing. It's like all neuroscience. And so for years, I've been teaching students like you're supposed to fail when you're learning at certain times. You're not supposed to have this happy path all the time where you just start learning and there's this linear trajectory and then magically you're, you know, the skill at the end. Instead, there's a bunch of peaks and valleys and that failure actually helps you learn. But I learned that there's actually a number for this. So 85% of the time when you're learning, you should be succeeding. And that makes it so that you feel confident and you're not going to just completely drop off and quit. But 15% of the time you should be failing when you're learning that thing. And that failure state actually makes it so that you are more able to learn in the future. And it's meaning that you're actually challenging yourself as well. So if you're learning, make sure that you're actually struggling at points and don't just take the really, really easy path. Make sure that you are challenging yourself. And in the inverse too, if you are struggling, that's okay. You're supposed to be struggling when you're learning something new. But if you're struggling like 50% of the time or 75% of the time, maybe scale it back a little bit and challenge yourself a little bit less because it could become really demotivating and could be less than optimal for learning. That is super interesting. I assume it's data backed. Yes. Do you know how much variation, individual variation there was? Like, is it pretty tightly around 15% for everyone? Or is it like a wide range? Like some people could be failing much more and be optimal and others much higher. That's a good question. I think it's just a, 
zone that's generally the best for the most amount of people. So it's like, it's obviously impossible to measure like exactly 15% of the time I'm failing, 85% of the time I'm succeeding, but it's just that general ballpark, I think. And it was a study at Princeton University and I'll link it in the show notes. So have you been able to put this into practice and do you count your fails? Because I try to ignore mine. Is it at all possible? <laughs> you don't obsess over them? It's not something that I like put into an Excel sheet or anything <laughs> like that. But I do try to keep that in mind when I'm learning something is that I'm not going to be good at it right away. Like right now. Okay. So I found out that there was a curling open house, you know, like curling in the Olympics yeah. right near where I live. And then I went and did that. And then now I'm in a curling league for beginners, cool. which is hysterical, I think. <laughs> but I think that as somebody who teaches people, it's really important that I put myself in those beginner's mindset for different things. And it's usually not code related anymore, but doing something that puts me outside of my comfort zone and that I'm going to suck at at first. Like I fell over so many times when I was trying to push this thing on ice. So yes, I'm definitely failing probably more than 15% right now <laughs> at curling, but it is something where if I am failing more than that 15% of the time, maybe I need to just repeat that same thing over and over again instead of progressing to the next step. Yeah. I like felt phantom pain in my lower back slash butt when you said curling because of the one time <laughs> I tried it and I felt so much. I've never tried it. I've done a lot of shuffleboard, which is basically curling on easy mode. Because you're not on ice, and I mean, that pretty much makes it easier right there, right? <laughs> it's really fun. Would highly recommend. Are there like curling, like ice plex? Like, do you do the same place you go ice skating, or where would you actually go curling? So, at least around here, there are different curling centers. So, you can just look it up, like your city and then curling center. Huh. And then they do lessons very regularly, but then they also have different leagues for people at different levels. That's cool. I don't think I've ever seen curling. Is it like longer than a normal ice skating rink? So you have to have like a special. It actually is pretty close to the length of a normal ice rink. In fact, it might actually be the same length, but it's the thing that you're curling. The um, I forget what it's called. The thing that you're pushing weighs like 40 pounds. Oh, man. So it skates on the ice, but then it actually stops at some point too. Are they called a stone, I think? Like curling stone? Yeah, rock or stone. There you go. There you go. I was Googling, curling ball, what do you push? <laughs> <laughs> I've been curling exactly once. It was like a team bonding thing, and it is burned in my memory because I collided with someone, fell on my ass, and like just, it hurt. So I stick to shuffleboard because it's like more like a 95% success rate, you know, which is more my comfort zone than 85%. <laughs> All right, that's a very good one. I like that one. Even though it's non-technical, it still counts because, hey. It's data-backed. That's technical. That's true. Yeah, there you go. Plus, like, who cares what the actual segments are called? You know, just say what you want. <laughs> uh, Amelia, your turn. What did I want to talk about? Oh, CSS Cascade Layers. Super exciting. Ooh. They're actually, they came out in Firefox two days ago. So they're in the current version of Firefox 97. So for the CSS Cascade, there's all these layers where it decides which styles to apply if, you know, you say body background blue and also body background red, is it going to be blue or is it going to be red? And that depends, like, did you use a tag for the selector? Did you use a class? Did you use an ID? And I think a lot of trouble that people run into with CSS has to do with this because they'll add a style and then it won't work and then they won't understand why. And then they'll learn that if you add another part to the selector, <laughs> it'll override another selector. So it's like really frustrating. And I think we've all been there. And for the cascade layers, you can basically create different layers and you can have like a utility layer, like a core styles layer, like an element specific layer. And then the order in which you declare those layers, I think if it's declared earlier, it wins. No, I think if it's declared later, it wins. I don't know, one or the other, but it'll make it easier to basically handle CSS styles and make it really explicit which one actually wins if there's like two colliding ones with the same specificity. Interesting. I feel like this is the type of thing we used to do by like very carefully crafting the order of when your CSS things and you'd you'd have those like the mm -hmm. these frameworks that would have the layers of like here's the base layer and here's the graphical layer and here's your overrides and all of that but they do it by 
very careful ordering and specificity numbers and what have you. So this is basically letting you just mm -hmm. say that in code. It's like getting rid of, it's the same thing we did for JavaScript with modules of like getting rid of the fact that the careful ordering of layers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's nice. I've also used BIM a lot, which is like basically you only do one class for every single style, which gets really verbose. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm super excited about this. Our current site is done in BIM and I'm ready for somebody to redo it. That's not going to be me because I would just do it in BIM again. <laughs> I don't know how to do it any better. You're not going to tailwind it up? I thought about it. No, I'm not going to, but I thought about it. But that's what I do. I think about things. You know, every time something new comes out, I'm like, oh, this looks cool. I think about it and then I just leave it alone. It's kind of my MO. I will go next because Cable needs time to think. Did you know there's no longer a caching benefit to loading scripts from a shared CDN? So such as Unpackage or like we used to load everything off of jQuery CDN or these CDNs that were there. And there was this cool side effect where if we're all using the exact same version, or if you were cool enough with writing with like a generic version without version numbers, you had the side effect of everybody who has already went to somebody else's website and loaded that JavaScript file, as long as it's the same CDN, it's cached in their browser already. So it was like this cool benefit, and that doesn't exist anymore. And I learned that recently. I actually learned it from a tweet from Lori Voss, who also learned it recently. Which led to a post by Stefan Judas. Say goodbye to resource caching across sites and domains. It's not actually new. I think it changed back in October, maybe even October 2020. So it might be like I'm late to this party. Cable's nodding along, so I think he's known this for a while. I remember hearing this quite a while ago, but also like everything since March 2020 is like one month over and over and over again. So like, right. really who cares? Well, that's why it's like, cool. It's like TI, like today I learned it. I wasn't, I just learned this. It's not new, but I learned it and uh, maybe it's new to you. It was new to me. It's not like I'm using it anyways anymore, but I just thought it was a cool thing that we could all do. It kind of felt like a community thing to do is like, hey, let's all just load this one JavaScript file once and uh, be done with it. But that is now gone. And I think it's gone for good reasons. I think it actually improves privacy and security quite a bit and other things. And I think the caching benefits were somewhat nominal anyways. So anyways, I'll link up those, this article, say goodbye to resource caching across sites and domains. And you can read about it for yourself. But yeah, I just learned that recently. And I was like, huh, shows what I know. But now I know, and now you know. All right, Cable, I stalled long enough. I'm acting as if you're not prepared, but you totally are. I'm just messing with you. Uh, it's your turn. What do you got? Yeah, so I have kind of a fun one. This is in the TypeScript world. And I actually, when I was trying to track this down, I consulted our TypeScript expert, Nick Nisi. So I had a bug that I had to fix the other day where a React component was failing. And it was failing because it was getting past a prop that it thought it could render as a React node. And the caller had changed it to be something else that needed to be interpreted in a certain way. And so, you know, quick bug fix, noticed it changed the caller to pass a React node and it was fine. But then I was like, wait, this is typed. Like the prop declaration or the component declared it to be expecting a React node. How did it possibly not get caught by TypeScript that we were passing something that React didn't know how to render? And I spent a while trying to dig into this. Like, did we do something wrong? What's going on? It turns out that, so the, the TypeScript definitions for React's components, React Node and all of these things are coming from definitely typed. And React Node is defined as, it's either a React child, a React fragment, a React portal, Boolean null or undefined. React fragment, for reasons that I don't know, is defined as empty object or React Node array which basically empty object is essentially any, right? This is a like the most permissive type you could possibly have. So if you are using types in a React app and you are typing props as a React node because you think that's gonna save you or keep you from passing things that are gonna not be able to be rendered as React, you are not protected. React.react node as a type is meaningless. It does not protect you from anything. This is apparently a known issue it's in the GitHub repo since 2018. 
Wow. There have been discussions. There was a proposed fix. And then the discussion dropped and nobody's fixed it. So I'm looking at doing like a patch locally in our application around it. But broadly, the thing I learned today is if you're relying on the react.react node type, you are completely and utterly unprotected from type errors. Oh, man. What are you using instead? So TBD, because I'm I'm still trying to figure this out. (laughs) In the discussion around the issue, there was a proposed different definition for React Fragment that was like a little bit more well-defined. So what I'm looking at doing is there's like a, a what's it called? Like package patch or node patch. There's a, a way you can patch mm-hmm. node modules locally. So I'm looking at patching the just the definition of React Fragment, which is the one that's like opening this type up. I took the patch from the description put it in and ran my type checker and it blew up with errors. So I actually don't know if that's going to be a viable option yet or not. Another thing that I was considering, um, if that doesn't work, is actually just defining a custom type that kind of captures all the subcases that we care about and then just doesn't open. And it'll probably miss one or two things that in theory would also work, but that we don't use. And so then I we don't have to worry about it. So yeah. The solution that I'm coming to is still in progress, but the thing that I learned is this thing is broken and it's leaving your type system open to all sorts of errors that will only show up at runtime. Have you tried JavaScript? I hear it's pretty good. (laughs) Oh, then I'd be unprotected everywhere. (laughs) You would have gone through none of this trouble and been landed in the exact same position on these errors, you know? Yeah. They would have cropped up at runtime. The whole reason to do this is so that we can eliminate these whole classes of errors from ever making it into runtime. And so to discover that we were very much unprotected for what is it? I mean, like I grepped our code base. There's like 180 references to react.react node types in different places. So like this is something that we are relying on quite a bit. Yeah, it's a false sense of security. Exactly. Well, hopefully you find a fix. That is interesting. So probably if you guys are using it that much, probably a lot of people are using it a lot, don't you think? It's pretty common. I suspect that many people are using this and thinking they are more protected than they are. Well, if you could come up with a solution and fix it, you could help like probably thousands of people. Yeah, so that's one of the things we're looking for is like, okay, if we can find the fix, then we can try to make the time to get it submitted back upstream and get it to work or at least post how we fixed it on there so that other folks who run into this can do it it's a big thing to learn all right there you have it t-i-l now our final segment today is going to be a project focus normally what we would do is we would pick a project the four of us would check it out we would tell you all about it and discuss we're going to do it a little bit differently today instead the author of the vest framework joined me earlier this week and he told me all about it so we will end til say goodbye to amelia cable and ally thanks so much for hanging out this has been lots of fun and we'll say hello to vest right after this hey jared here one of the things we can count on in the software industry is change The the state-of-the-art changes so fast, in fact, that keeping up can feel like a whole other job on top of your actual job. That's why we created Changelog Weekly. It's our totally free newsletter that we drop in your inbox each and every Sunday. We link to the latest news, the best articles, and the most interesting projects that you should be aware of. We also add a little commentary from us saying why something's important, pointing you to other instances of a trend, or just making a dorky joke to keep it lively. So if you haven't yet, I recommend subscribing to Changelog Weekly and help us help you keep up with the latest. Head to changelog.com weekly and sign up today. Again, it's totally free and we never spam you. Yuck. One last time, that's changelog.com weekly. So this is our project focus segment. We are focusing in on VEST. Now, normally when we do a project focus, it's the regular panelists. We take a look at a deal, we talk about it. But today we have a special treat. We are actually joined by the author of VEST, Evutar. 
you actually were listening to a show where we were talking about form validation and you reached out to me and said, hey, I've got a form validation thing. It's pretty cool. I tend to agree with you. I've looked at it. It looks cool to me. So first of all, welcome to JS Party. And then secondly, let's talk about this project of yours. Hey, awesome to be here. So it's been about 10 months since you first contacted me and said, hey, form validations, you know, a pain in the butt. I've got a nice solution. And I think I was ranting a little bit about how it's gotten harder and easier over the years. And there's certain ones that are still tricky, especially when you're building purely front end things because they require back end knowledge. If I do recall what I was talking about then, VEST is your declarative validations framework, which is inspired by unit testing libraries. That's a cool angle. I've never thought about doing it that way. So tell us what we mean by inspired by unit testing libraries. So VEST basically takes the syntax, the general syntax of unit testing libraries like Mocha or Jest that many uh, front-end developers are now familiar with. And it tries to adopt that same syntax or a very similar syntax of a validation suite for the world of form validation. Because in the world of unit testing, what we basically have is a big suite of different tests that make sure that our code, our functions, match some criteria. And when you think about it, form validation is pretty much the same. So you have the big construct, so you don't have a unit testing suite, but you have a form. Mm -hmm. And inside of it, you have some different fields. And each field, at least in your form validation, has to match some criteria. So why not take that same unit testing structure and use it for form validation? Yeah. And so do you, do you run those validations as if they're tests? Do you have some sort of a, a runner that then says, yes, this executes correctly? Or do you not have to? Because you're basically writing the test when you're creating the validation rules. Is that how it works? Exactly. So VEST internally works exactly like a unit testing framework. Actually, it could be even a unit testing framework if it wasn't run on the browser and if I uh, hooked some CLI to it. But exactly as you mentioned it, you just write uh, the validation as a series of tests. and. In the beginning, I actually wrote it as an experiment, and I learned that there are very significant values that you get and benefits that you get from it. Mm. So what are some of those values and benefits that you get from it? Most front-end developers have written some sort of form validation, whether it be with just plain functions that they write or with a third-party library or a schema um, validation library. And most of them are very useful, but there are places where they're very rigid as well. For example, when you have multiple criteria for the form validation for a specific field, for example, the username, it has to, it is required. So yeah, required. It has to match some specific length and it has a third test, for example, for the username isn't already taken on the server. Now expressing all these as a series of different tests or a series of different validations is very difficult to do with traditional validations because you don't really have the structure for specifying different criteria. So you either put everything in the same function for one field or sometimes you even put them in just one big functions for all validations for all fields. And when using a suite-like test for form validation, you get a specific test for each scenario, for each field, and you can mix and match, and everything is very orderly outside of your feature code. So I assume the same thing applies to a lot of the built-in newish HTML validation. So there are things you can do, such as required, such as you can do format attributes in your HTML. Those are similar where like they get you so far, but then when your form gets sufficiently complex, they fail because they just don't have that flexibility, such as combining multiple rules. Exactly. Or waterfall rules. Exactly. So makes sense. What happens with VEST on your failure states? So a lot of times you have to then interact with the rest of your page and say, okay, if this field is not valid, I want to display this error message or, you know, put a border red around it. And then it, if everything isn't passing, I don't want to submit the form or sometimes you have more complex constraints even than that and like stop form, form submission. Sometimes you may hide or show other areas of a form. How does VEST work in that context? 
Seamlessly and beautifully, I'd say. Oh, nice. Even though I shouldn't say it about my own framework. <laughs> Seamlessly <laughs> yeah. and beautifully. I like yeah. that answer. But um, now, seriously, Vest takes its syntax from a unit testing library. And in unit testing library, you have um, different tests for each scenario, and each test has its own description. So, for example, in the case of username, I try to do the same thing. So I say test, I write the function test and specify it for the username field. And then I have the validation message the user would get in case of a failure, just as the description for the test. So when writing the validation, it's easy for you to understand what's going on. When reading it, it's easy for you to understand what's going on. And the output of vest is that test description. And now this is the most basic scenario that you have just the validation message. You mentioned a few more. So if you want to display the validation message in red, well, VES is not a UI framework and it doesn't care much about the UI, but it does give you some class name generator based on top of the validation result. So you give it back the validation result and the name of class names you want to display at any validation stage. So for example, in case it's valid, you want to show the success class name. Mm -hmm. And in case it's failing, you want to show the invalid. And in case it's warning, then just say warning. And you get back a list of validation uh, class names for each of the failing or passing validation fields. Very cool. And that leads me into the other aspect that I thought was very nice way of putting it together. First of all, dependency free, so it's very small, but more importantly, perhaps, is framework agnostic. So like you said, VEST is not a UI library. It doesn't really care which UI library you use. So whether you're on the React or the Svelte train, it plays well with all these circumstances, right? Exactly, exactly. Which is a big benefit, I think, over the other uh, frameworks that usually are UI dependent. Yeah, that's very cool. So. Back to my rant, I think I was referring to a very specific constraint, which is still hard to do in many cases. It requires some sort of back-end knowledge, which is uniqueness. So you are on Twitter, as am I. On Twitter, you are Evyataral, mm -hmm. if I pronounce that right. Yeah. So if I go to sign up today, and I'm on Twitter.com trying to sign up, and I try to use your handle, Twitter's going to do some sort of uniqueness validation and say, this username is already taken. And that doesn't, they don't load all their handles into the web page, right? Because that would be silly. They do a backend check. So how does Vest work with specifically uniqueness constraints, but anything that requires a third party knowledge? Mm -hmm. So basically, and I'd say, I try to stay as close as possible to the world of unit testing frameworks. And the way you do it in unit testing frameworks like Mocha or Jest again, you run an async test. And inside that test, you do that async logic. And the way it works uh, inside of Jest, for example, you just pass an async function. And then if it's tr it throws, then the test fails. And the same works with Vest. So if you have an async test, so for example, I have a test function in which I use a, an async callback. It's hard to describe, of course, of your audio, but um, sure. you use an async function. And if that async function throws, then the validation fails. As easy as that. So anything in that async that you need to go ahead and get done, whether it's a API call or some fancy algorithm crunching, maybe you run an ML model, doesn't really matter as long as it's just sitting there waiting. And when it comes back, then that one comes back. So I assume at that point the form is invalid or the form is unable to be submitted or moved forward according to Vest's knowledge until that thing passes. Is that the case? Yeah. So... Unlike most frameworks um, and most uh, models of thinking about form validation, invest fields are required by default unless uh, specifically defined as optional. This makes it so that as long as not all fields are filled or as long as not all required fields are pa uh, passing, mm -hmm. then the validation is not valid to begin with or is not valid at all. So if you get your suite and uh, your validation suite and you try to run is valid on it, it will always say no unless all the required fields are passing. Very cool. So I should say VEST is not a new library. It looks like you're on NPM version 4.1.2, so you've had some iteration on this thing. Tell us the backstory. Where did you start this framework and how long have you been working on it? I actually started working on VEST like a couple of years ago at around 2016 or 2017, and back then it wasn't even called VEST. It was called Passable. and 
I was working on it when I worked at Fiverr.com. And back then, I was just learning the first time about unit testing with uh, Mocha, it was, um, I think. And as I said before, the ideas just clicked to me because, well, you have that suite of testing and the thinking model, mental model of testing for validation was just the same for me. And in the beginning, I also thought about, well, we have to do it in JavaScript because if we do it in JavaScript, then we can run it on Node and have validations that are the same on the server and the browsers. So this like is a defining criteria for VEST. Mm -hmm. And iterating over this idea in the beginning it was terrible. I didn't know how to write a unit testing framework, but going again and again, I landed on the solution for VEST, which I think is pretty good. So that's awesome. So you can run Vest just as well on the back end as you can run it on the front end. So you can have your your inline, in-page, immediate validations that run, but in case somebody sneaky disables that code or just posts directly to your back end form, you can also run those exact same rules on the back end and it's all honky dory. Exactly. Love it. That's cool, man. That's like the holy grail right there. I really do dig this format. People can check it out on the website, vestjs.dev. And it is hard to say over audio, but for example, you test the username is required and you just have this one function call enforce data.username is not blank. And you just call that function. And you're basically writing your test right there. So I used to do Ruby on Rails and they had validations built into the Ruby code and the models. And you'd write the validations and they're really succinct like that. And then you have to go write a test that tests the same exact thing. And it always felt so redundant to me. I just skipped the test. I was like, you know, it's fine. It works. It's very terse syntax. And of course that would bite me one out of a thousand times. But in this case, it's zero out of a thousand. You don't have to rewrite the exact same rule twice, let alone a third time in your front end code. So that's spectacular. Exactly. So the website vestjs.dev, that's where people can check it out. Anything we need to know about this before we uh, call it a segment? Just try it. Tell me if you find anything I'm missing. I really enjoy working on it. And if you want to contribute to the project and help out, feel free. I'm always happy to help. Cool. Well, Avitar, thanks for joining me for this project focus. And uh, we appreciate your open sourcing this work. Thank you for having me. So after we recorded K-Ball's TIL, he dug much deeper into that whole React.ReactNode type situation, and he now knows exactly what's going on, has developed and deployed a workaround at Humu, and wrote it all down in an excellent blog post that we will link to in your show notes. Definitely give that a read if you're using React and TypeScript, it likely affects your projects. Quick shout out to our friends at Fastly once again. Thank you for having all of our CDN needs on lock to Breakmaster Cylinder for these delectable beats. And to you for listening, you are what makes JS Party possible. Next up on the pod, Veet is back in the front seat. See what I did there? But this time we have Anthony Fu and Paytac joining us. They're on the core team of VTest, a blazing fast unit testing library powered by Vite. And Anthony also has a super cool project called SlyDev that we discussed as well. It's a good one if I do say so myself, and we'll have it ready for you next week. <laughs>